Welcome to the Mount Carmel Christian Church Podcast. In our sermon series Alive, we're taking a look at how we can embrace the daily resurrection life Jesus provides for us. Today's speaker is Senior Minister Dee Dee Bacon. Glad you're here. Glad you are a part of our gathering today. If you are unaware of this, my name is Dee Dee Bacon, Senior Minister here, and uh, we're going to spend some time looking to God's Word and uh, continuing on in the theme of Alive. My kids are oral adults now, young adults, and we are at that time in our life where whenever we get together, every now and then, typically, we get into the remember when kind of conversations. You know what I'm talking about? Remember when Andrew split Christian's head with a baseball bat. (laughs) Remember when the bird flew in from the garage and mom freaked out. It's a bird! (laughs) Remember when we used to call Madeline Bulldog because she would run over people in the backyard football. The girl was insane. So just past week, they were all together, not all of them, I think three out of the four, and the conversation talked, shifted to a remember when discussion, and it was, remember that time when Andrew, our youngest, came in from outside, it had been snowing, and he was filled with snow, his boots were filled with snow, he was filled with snow, and he stood on the mat at the back door, dropping snow everywhere, and mom started to get on to him about it. She started to tell him, Andrew, pick up the mat and take that snow outside. And Andrew didn't quite understand. Andrew was not getting what she was saying. Uh, He was being overwhelmed. And so he came out, blurted out, I don't know what to do. How can I do it if I've never been told how to do it? Um, Let me get here specifically. I've never done this before. How am I supposed to know? And uh, at the last service, everyone went, oh, because, you know, he's four years old, cute little boy. And, you know, the youngest gets away with murder, <laughs> especially with mother. I mean, if it was the eldest, I mean, it would be, don't talk back to mother, whip, whip. No. Uh, <laughs> I've never done this before. How am I supposed to know? And, you know, we talked about that, and I got to thinking about that story. And I thought, you know what, that's a, a, a good lesson because of what God's been doing in my life of late, some of the reflections that I have uh, been making about myself. I realized that a lot of times, this is my problem. I assume people know what I know. I assume they understand what I've said in the manner that I've said it because, you know, I said it, right? I assume they understand the world that I know and they know what to do because I know what to do. And I think we all do that, right? And when we do that, we make these communications. We tell someone to do something, assuming they know what we know, assuming they understand what we understand, assuming they understand what we mean when we say it, and then they do it incorrectly, and we get mad, right? We're like, oh, come on. What's going on? But the problem is not, is, is not them. They, they, like Andrew, can say, I've never done this before. How am I supposed to know? I've never done this before. How am I supposed to know? Now, this comes to bear for me somewhat in my conversation with people about the Bible. A lot of times I'll talk with folks about the Bible, and I will say something like, 
you know, the Bible was written to be understood. And the implication in that is that if you read the Bible, you will be able to understand what it says. And that is true. And the Bible is the Word of God, and the Bible was written to be understood. But the truth of the matter is, I'm talking from a perspective of having done study, a perspective of dedicating my life, a large part of my life, to the study of Scripture, to go to school for studying of Scripture, and to spend my days and my job investigating the words of, of God in the Bible and understanding what was meant to be said and how it was meant to be said. That is an assumption that uh, is not true of everybody. And it's not an indictment on anyone's intelligence, and it's not a, a puffing me up. It is what it is. So many folks, when they come to the Bible and I say, well, you need to read the Bible and you'll understand, the truth of the matter is they can rightly say what Andrew says. How am I supposed to know because I've never done this before? I've never done this before. I'm not sure how to go about it. And the truth is, is that the Bible is hard to read sometimes. And there's a lot of confusing stuff. And it's stuff that we're reading and we're like, how does this fit? And I don't understand. And what do I need to read? And what version do I need to read? And what's this New Testament and Old Testament? And what's this? And, and how does that work? And, and then I have to think of it as, as the Word of God speaking to me. I just don't get it. And so based on that, I'm going to really work hard at helping uh, bring everyone up to speed, if you'd like, in the way I approach the text that I'm going to share with you today. And hopefully in that, I will be able to give you some insights, some hints as to a good methodology on which you can follow, simple methodology, simple common sense steps, common sense steps in which you can be able to come to the Bible and understand what is being said so that you might know how it works in your life and you might be able to glean what we're all after, God's communication to us in our situation. And so we're going to be talking about the book of Ephesians this morning. The book of Ephesians. Ephesians is contained in the New Testament part of the Bible. That is the part of the Bible that has to do with Jesus and Christianity. The Old Testament is before Jesus. The New Testament is after Jesus. Pretty, pretty, pretty straightforward there. I will say this. One of the best tools that I was given as an early Christian, one of the best tools that I was provided was a book that uh, I use still to this day after the many years of ministry, after many times studying Scripture. It's a book that was called The Lion Handbook of the Bible at the time. It was put out by Erdman's. Now Zondervan has it, and there's a number of additions to that. I would recommend that you, if you're interested in learning about the Bible, you purchase this book, maybe 20 bucks or so, on, uh, you can get it on, online, not very expensive, but a great resource in helping set up what's most important when you first come to Scripture. And that is something we call context. Context. In order to understand the Bible, the most fundamental question you have to begin with is this. What did this mean to the people who first received this message? 
Too many times we go at it the wrong way. We go at it, what does it mean to me? And we read the Bible in terms of what is happening now. And we've got to stop ourselves from doing that. We have to ask the question, what did this mean to the people who first received that? And once I'm able to determine that, then I'm able to take the communication of truth there out of the context it was said and apply it and have it applied to my life at this time and at this place. In order to set up context, you have to answer questions like, who wrote this book? Now, we all say the Word of God was written by God, but he used people with their individual quirks and styles. So you have to ask, who is the author? Who was he writing to? What was the purpose of his writing? What was the time of his writing? Was it Old Testament? Was it New Testament? Was it before? Was it, was it while Jesus was alive? Was it when Jesus had, had returned to heaven and it was the time of the church? What was the time frame? What kind of literature is this? Is it history? Is it a letter from one person to a church, from one person to another? Is it poetry? The Psalms are all, all, all poetry. It's, they're the lyrics of songs that were sung in church, basically. Proverbs are little pithy statements. What kind of literature? And even sometimes within certain Bible books, you'll find different kinds of literature. It's important to understand that you know the type of literature it is. You know, people will get excited about the book of Revelation, and, and, and sometimes they forget that that type of literature was very unique to that time. It's called apocalyptic literature. It's the communication of truth using visions or pictures so you can't get too excited and take it literally. You have to recognize it's a picture that paints a truth that communicates a message. All these things can be, held, can be answered in the handbook of the Bible. Guys, there are lots of pictures in it, so that's kind of cool. Charts and graphs, but it gives you good synopsis, a good idea of context. And in setting up context, you're able to then work on understanding what is being communicated. So we're at Ephesians. Ephesians. Ephesians was written by a man named Paul. Paul, as we read in the book of Acts, was once a guy called Saul. He was a member of the, tri of the, of the denomination, if you'd like, of, of Judaism. Uh, after the, the, after the, around the time of Jesus, he was a Pharisee. He was dedicated to the Word of God, and he was dedicated to the conservative views, you would say, of, of God and following God's law and living out God's word. He was dedicated to following God according to the traditions of the Old Testament of Judaism. Part of that commitment, he was the top student of his class, he was the star amongst his peers. Part of his commitment was that he saw Christianity, this new message that was coming out that was saying Jesus is the Messiah we've been waiting for. He, he died and rose from the dead, and he is the Savior. Part of his, pro, his issue was to, to deal with them and to, to snuff him out. Well, then he has an encounter with Jesus himself on the road to Damascus, and his life forever changes, and God appoints him to be the messenger for Christ to the non-Jews, the Gentiles. Paul spends his life establishing new churches in the regions beyond Israel. And so Paul is the writer of the letter of the Ephesians. It's a letter written to a church. It says it's written to the church at Ephesus, but if you look in your Bibles there in chapter 1, verse 1, you might notice that your Bible has a little notation, a little A or B or some kind of notation that says, if you look further down at the bottom of the page, some early manuscripts do not have to Ephesus or in Ephesus. 
which says, which means that the earliest manuscripts we have, the manuscripts closest to the time of the original writing, do not have the title in Ephesus which gets some folks to think that this letter wasn't originally meant to go primarily to the church in Ephesus, but instead was meant to be written, to, was meant to be read by different churches who passed it along in that region and eventually landed in Ephesus. And because Ephesus was the biggest and most significant church of the time, it kind of got attributed to Ephesus. Now, saying all that doesn't change the content and the intent of the letter. The letter was written by Paul to encourage Christians on how they can remain faithful and live out the Christian life in the world that they lived in, to deal with the problems that they were facing and encourage them in their faith to live for Christ, to know Jesus, and to, to live according to the ways of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. The time of Paul's writing he was dealing with a major issue. It was a major conflict within the church right from the beginning. And it was a conflict that was born out of, really, racism. You see, Christianity finds its origins in Judaism. In fact, Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was the fulfillment of the promises of the scriptures of the Jews, the Old Testament, right? And so there were people within the church who were Jews who believed that in order to become a Christian you first had to take the step to become a Jew, especially if you were not a Jew. And so they were insisting that Christians that had not made that commitment, Christians who were non-Jews, who had not committed themselves to start eating kosher, be circumcised, follow the dietary restrictions that the Jews followed, observe the festivals and, and, and celebrations that the Jews followed, if they did not commit to first being Jews then they couldn't qualify, really, to be Christians. If you weren't a real Jew in your commitment, you couldn't really qualify to be the recipient of the Messiah of the Jews, is what they taught. And this created a great tension amongst the church. And in fact, the apostles, we're told, had to have a, a council and, and they had to clarify the issue, particularly since the, the message of Jesus was spreading throughout the world and was gaining traction amongst many non-Jews, Gentiles. And so they made a declaration. They said, no, no, that's not right. Jesus is enough. There's no restrictions that need to be applied to non-Jews. They don't have to become Jews first in order to become Christians after. And Paul actually becomes the number one spokesman that is the champion for the correct doctrine of how a person is made right with God through faith in Jesus. He's the one that, that, that really goes against the Judaizers, they're called. Him being a Jew himself, him once being a champion of this concept, now is transformed to say, no, no, no. Jesus is enough. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what your race, Jew or non-Jew, we're all on equal footing with Jesus. No longer will God limit his people to a race. No, all who are in Jesus are the people of God. They are the new Israel. They belong to Jesus and have equal standing. And so he writes his letter in, to, in, in Ephesians to encourage Christians, primarily the non-Jewish Christians, to encourage them with this message because no doubt they were dealing with it and they were dealing with doubts and, and insecurities and wondering, do we have to do more in order to be made right with God? And, and Paul writes in chapter 1 and chapter 2 in particular to tell them, no, you have to understand that if you are in Jesus, you're in. 
again, you're in the inner circle. There's no totem pole of preference to God in terms of your race. All races are on equal standing when it comes to being made right through Jesus Christ. And if you're in, you receive the full riches of what God promises through his Messiah, through faith in Jesus. That is the content of chapters 1 and 2 of Ephesians. And I would like for us now, understanding this, to now hone into what he says in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And I'm going to be reading from my, my scriptures is the New American Standard Bible. Now, I read the New American Standard Bible primarily for teaching because it's a, for me it's a better uh, technical version in teaching. My personal reading, I use the New International Version because it's an easier read. And the philosophy of New International Version is to provide an, an, a translation that is to use modern language that's easier to understand and to capture the, the principles and the concepts communicated in the original in a way that's easy to, to, to comprehend for us today who use the English that we use. It is in no way less or more than any other version. It's definitely the Word of God translated into English, but it's just a different way of presenting that. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. All right, here we go. Paul says, And you were dead, <clears throat> how about that? And you were dead, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. Now, it's important if you have your bulletins, you can do this or whatever. However, highlight that word walk because the concept of walking is very, very fundamental to a lot of what Paul teaches in Ephesians, but it's fundamental in this piece, right? Paul uses the idea of walking the, as an illustration for living. Life is a journey. And he's like, you used to live, walk, according to the course of this world, he says, according to the prince of the power of the air, according to the ways of Satan, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Paul begins to remind them of the bad news, right? Remind them of the bad news. The bad news is that without Jesus, before you became Jesus, whether or not you were religious, whether or not you were a pagan, whether or not you were a Jew, whether or not you were a Gentile, every one of us lived in a manner, we were walking in a manner that he says was according to the ways of the world, according to the ways of Satan, according to the ways of death and destruction. Now we read this and some of us may think, wow, I get that. I remember before Jesus, my life was miserable. Before Jesus, my life was empty. Before Jesus, I was a bad person. I did things that were selfish and mean. I did things that were hurtful and destructive. I was into things that were, were, were addictive and, and problematic. I, have, I, have, I had problems, and, and I'm so thankful that I have now a new way to live. But before Jesus, I get that. And then some of us may be reading that and be like, yeah, I don't really get that necessarily on an emotional sense because I was a goody two-shoes. I grew up in church. Uh, I, I, I was part of church. I was a Sunday school girl. I was a Sunday school boy. I, I did what I was supposed to do when I was supposed to do it. And I don't necessarily get that. But notice Paul says, he, he says, we all formerly lived, including himself. And remember who Paul is. This is the guy that lived by the book. This is the guy that achieved all the achievements, uh, got straight A's, went to the best university, was not only religiously adept, 
Morally as well, he followed God according to the law that he understood in a way that was better than anybody. This guy was a good guy, but he says, no, even me, I walked in a way that was destructive because the way we walked relied on us, and we know that even our best is not enough to qualify to be right with God. For the wages of sin is what? Death. And we're all in that place. And so he begins by communicating something that we all need to appreciate every now and then. It's always good to, to understand the teeth that we've escaped of the dog the, of judgment so that we might appreciate the escape, right? Um, we might appreciate the, the blessing. We can appreciate why it's called good news. And he reminds them, hey, you are all headed. Remember, all of us were in a bad place. Not right with God. But he says, but God, here's the good news, being rich in mercy. Because of his great love with which he loved us. How is that love demonstrated? Through Jesus on the cross. Jesus in the, in the tomb. Jesus resurrected from the dead. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive. There's our alive word, right? We love that word. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I mean, if we can't get excited about that, I don't know. Maybe we need more coffee. I don't know. <laughs> but that's wow. That's amazing. That is like amazing grace. How sweet. I mean, that is awesome. What is he saying? You were dead in your transgressions, but God in his kindness has provided a way for us to be alive and right with God with Jesus by faith. And we're able to receive not only salvation from, our, from the death penalty we face. No, we're given life. Not only has God counted you valuable, demonstrated by Jesus on the cross, saying you are important to me and I don't want you to spend eternity apart from me. Not only are you valuable to me and I'll show you that value by, by pouring out the, the life of my own son, but you have value to give because I'm making you alive and your, my spirit is in you. And you not only have, are valuable, you have value to offer in your calling that I'm placing on your life. Your life now becomes defined by a new purpose and a new way as, as resurrection power becomes alive in you. Hey, man, check it out. He says, and has seated us with him in the heavenly places. That is not only future talk. That's present talk. That, the promise of resurrection life is not something to receive that's to come. Yes, it is. But it's also something we receive now. Belinda Carlisle was right. Heaven is a place on earth. <laughs> Do you remember that song? Anyway, that just came to me. That's pretty bad. I age myself. Sorry. But it's true. You know where heaven dwells? Heaven is coming alive in the lives of obedient followers. You know where the church is? It's not this building. It's you and me who are Jesus followers who are demonstrating the truth of this by coming alive by the resurrection power. The very power that raised Jesus from the dead, he says, is at work at you. 
We talk about, about being overcome by the world and things falling apart, and that is the realities that we live with. But you know what? We have available to us a resource greater than any issue we face. It is the resurrection power of Jesus in the Spirit of God that's in us. That's what he says. And he says, there's no second-class citizens in the church. If you come to faith in Christ, you receive the fullness of the blessing. I will no longer, God says, limit the people of God to a race. All races, all people, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, are right with God through faith in Jesus. And he really gets into this in the next segment here as we finish up to verse 10. He says, "For by, Oh, by the way, if you're interested in knowing my favorite verse of Scripture, here we go. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as the result of works, your own power, your own strength, your own means, your own resources, your own competence, not as a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. There's that word walk again. You see it? And it's in opposition to the word we just noticed right there in the beginning. He said, you walked in the way of death. Now you're walking in this new way of life. Yeah, it's a fun word, that word workmanship. It's the word poimain. Poimain, I don't know if you catch that in my funny accent, but poimain is the word we get poem from. You are God's poem. His spoken word, work of art. Some of you are artists, you get this. The production of God's creativity and power and beauty, that's you. As you become one who has come alive by the power of the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead in your life as you live it out. You are God's poem. God's poem demonstrated in good works, right? Good works, things that are done that are characterized by God at work, blessing others. Good works prepared beforehand. What does that mean? Well, it's not a determination of each and every one of your steps. We're not talking predestination in that sense. No, we're talking predestination in terms of a plan. Remember uh, back when we said that at the beginning in Genesis, God told Satan that he would fix the destruction that he had wrought on humanity by sending the seed of the, the, the woman who would come and he would, he would do what? Satan would bite his heel but he would crush his head. And that's a, a first indication that God had a plan, and that plan involved the destruction of the work of Satan through one who would come, Jesus, and would do a work. That's what we're talking about, the good works beforehand. And the work of the church going on now, you and me are part of that lineage, part of that plan. We are joining in, doing our part, playing our notes of music in our life. We're putting our words to the song as a collective, as God does his work to fulfill the plan to reach all who will hear about the good news of Jesus so that they too may be made right with God through faith by the gospel message we share. Woo! Amen. If your mind isn't blown, you need another cup of coffee. <laughs> I'm going to close. So let me try tie this all together for us in an illustration that comes from my childhood. So I was a teenager, 13 or 14 years old. And uh, my family, Zimbabwe, Africa is where I was living at the time, is a landlocked country. There's no ocean. 
So if you had to go, wanted to go to the beach, you had to go to another country. So we went to South Africa, which is due south, and we went to this place, this, this city called Durban. Durban, D-U-R-B-A-N. Durban is literally located right on the ocean. In fact, we stayed in a hotel downtown, and I would walk down the road, and I would then go to the beach, and the beach was huge, and it was always tons of people, and I loved swimming in the ocean. I particularly loved, I particularly loved at 13 and 14, boogie boarding, riding the waves, because they were perfect waves for boogie boarding, not too big, not too small. It's nothing worse than being on a little puny wave trying to boogie board. It doesn't work, and then when they're too big, you can't do it because you just get destroyed. I love boogie boarding. The beach there was interesting. The beach there... <laughs> Only in Africa, well, I suppose it's in other places. They had like out to sea, they had shark nets because great whites like to frequent that beach as well. So it was exciting times, right? And they said, don't go to the shark nets because you might meet something you don't want to meet. So, um, so this is how it worked for boogie boarding. I, I mean, I love boogie boarding so much that I would boogie board all day as long as I could. In fact, I did it so much. One, the first day, I didn't learn my lesson. I did it so much that I, I literally rubbed my chest and my stomach raw. And, they were, they were, and they, they were, it was bleeding. And the salt water really added to the experience. But I didn't care. I was going to boogie board as much as I could. And so from then on, I had a boogie board with a T-shirt on. But this is how it worked. You got your board, right? It's about this big, and you carried it. And I was smaller, well, a little bit smaller than it. And then you had to battle to get out to sea, right? That's what the first part of the journey is. You, you battle to get out to sea. And your boogie board actually is somewhat of a liability. You have to tie it on to you, either on your wrist with the rope or to your ankle. Why? Because as you're walking through, that thing gets bashed around with the waves, and you can lose it and find yourself being dragged. And the beach was crowded. And so you had to navigate around people, and it was a struggle. You had to swim in the water, bang, bang, bing. I mean, that's how it is. And then I learned, of course, you learn as big waves are coming, you learn, then you stand, and then you grab your wave, and you go underneath, or you dive underneath the wave. And that works sometimes, but sometimes those waves are tricky because there's one right behind the other, and you go under one, and you pop up, and there's the other one crashing on you. And it was tough. Tough work. Tough work to get out there because you had to rely on power and strength and you had to deal with bashing the waves. And truth be told, if that was the only experience you had boogie boarding, I wouldn't do it. And in fact, the truth be told, if that was the only experience of boogie boarding, if I kept on doing it, I would get worn out, beat up, and eventually probably, worse came, drown if that was all I did. Well, for me, that's an illustration of the first part of the text that we've just talked about. For me, that's a picture of you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. To me, that's a picture of our life before Jesus, doing it on our own, figuring we have our best interests at heart. God doesn't know what, really what he's talking about. I can do it on my own. I can handle the waves, and I can get in and do it my own. And sometimes we, we do, and truth be told, we get beat up, worn out. And we work and we work and we strive and we do our best, but the truth be told, if we just keep on it, and the more we do it, the more we realize the path we're choosing is one that's hopeless, one that will eventually lead to not the fulfillment of what we want, life, excitement, but drowning in despair and emptiness. That's what the Bible teaches, and that's Quite honestly, even though we resist it and even though we fight against it, that's what we know deep down in our hearts. Let's be truth about that. 
the ways of the world and the choices we make, though we might be enamored by them, though we might believe at the moment we have, and when we sit down in our quiet moments, we have those questions of what are we doing? Why am I doing it? Why am I here? Where's the love? Where's the, wh wh why? But boogie boarding isn't about the journey out, right? Well, how do you start riding the wave? How do you really get to the fun? Well, it begins at a moment when you're out to sea and you decide, I'm no longer going out against the waves. I'm going to make a decision to turn around. And that board that I had that was more of a a slap to carry and a struggle and a fight to, to move. No, that's going to be the means by which I'm going to access the power of the waves. But the power of the waves can't be accessed until I make a decision. That decision is to do what? To turn around. Now, interestingly enough, in the scriptures, we have a word that talks about this moment that comes in the life of a person that makes a faith commitment to Jesus. It's the word repentance. And repentance literally means to change direction, to change course, to turn around. Repentance in the Bible means I was once going my way. I was once struggling in my way. I was once believing that my way was the only way to get life. And now I've come to the point where I can't do it. i come to the point where I realize that, that the way that I was li living was going to end in death. But thanks be to God. He's provided another way, a way that's provided open by, by Jesus. For God so loved the world, for God so loved me, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. God did not send Jesus into the world to condemn Didi, but he sent him into the world to save Didi through Jesus. And that point in our life when we decide to do that repentance and say, I can't do it. I'm done. God, you're right. I'm going to turn around. I'm going to shift the focus of the board of my life, and I'm now going to face a new direction and live a new way, and I'm going to commit myself not to the habits that I, that I was doing in my old way, but now a new set of habits. A new set of habits are not about my effort and my works, as Paul says, but about my cooperation. Because in order to ride the water in the new powerful way. You can't use the skills that you use when you were going out, going the opposite direction. You have to use a new set of skills. And what are those skills ultimately all about? It's ultimately all about cooperation submission. If I want to catch the wave and ride the wave, what do I have to do? I have to learn to be on time with the wave. I have to learn to point the board in the right direction. I have to learn to be sensitive to the wave. I have to be in touch with the wave. I have to learn to submit to the power of the wave and to relax as I ride the wave in a new and thrilling way. And boy, is it fun to ride the wave. Is it fun to ride the waves? The struggle of, of the old life pales in comparison and the thrill of the new life. What was a, a, a source of battle and struggle, this board against the waves, now becomes the, the means by which I, I feel the power and, and the thrill of, of riding with the wave. The people who were in my way on the way out now become fun obstacles to ride around and show off in front of, right? <laughs> Paul says, you are a new creation. Come alive. And your new life, walking in this new way, this new alive, resurrected way, now needs not to be one of striving to earn God's approval, but living as a thank you for God's approval. 
and submitting yourself to Him. Why do we read our Bible? We don't read our Bible because it's an effort to earn God's approval, to earn points with God so we can get a nicer place in heaven and be right with Him. No, we read our Bible so we can learn to identify God's Word. We go to where we know God's Word has spoken so that we may be able to attune ourselves to His Word so that when He speaks to us, we will hear Him and be able to catch the wave. Why do we pray? We don't pray because it's a burden. We pray because we can get to talk to God, understand who He is, understand to learn to rely on Him when we're overcome by the world so that we can catch the wave. Why do we go to church and participate in the fellowship of church and in ministry, fulfilling the calling that God has placed in our lives? Why? So we can catch the wave. And when we catch the wave, we live by grace in a new way, with a new life, alive by the power of the resurrection, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, what we will celebrate in a week from today. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, God's work of art, poems created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Catch the wave. A couple weeks ago was Be the Pig. Today is Catch the Wave. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for this text, and I pray that our hearts may be warmed. Those of us who know you may be encouraged by this truth. Ah, you know, we have this tendency that we want to still paddle and do it on our own when our life orientation is not meant to be that way. Help us to learn the skills of, of cooperation and of submission skills of aligning our lives and relaxing in your grace. The skills of recognizing that if we are in you, if we are riding the wave of your power in our life, the obstacles, the issues we face will be overcome. That we have resurrection power alive in us now. We're seated in the place of authority and and an and honor with the right hand of Jesus right now and that we will look to see that fulfillment in the end. I pray that you would help us to live that. And Lord, those that are here that may have not got that, that they're, they're, they're struggling, they're paddling, they're doing their own thing, they're at a place where they're, they're living a life that's, that's, that's characterized as walking in death. I ask that you would speak to them and let them know that this is not a time to, for them to be condemned, but instead to come to terms and, and to be out there and to turn that wave of board around and submit themselves to Jesus, catch the wave.
have the new life promised. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can interact with us online at our website, www.mtcarmelchurch.org. Also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.